the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Something certainly big developed in my life, and it is the bane of every radio announcer in the country, and that is a chronic cough. Long-term listeners to this program will probably remember those days. Certainly my engineer is he's shaking head yes with his finger dutifully poised over the mute button during that period of time. I will call what I thought was a season of dealing with post-nasal drip. I'm an allergy sufferer. It's something that's been in the family. So uh, for me, it just seemed to be load up on Mucinex and make sure you take your allergy medication. And surely this will finally go away. Well, days turned into weeks, turned into months. The cough became worse. And I'll never forget my reaction going into my doctor's office describing the symptoms And the next thing the doctor did was hand me a prescription for anti-reflux medication. And I sort of laughed it off and I said, wow, what, me? I don't even suffer from heartburn. This cannot possibly be acid reflux. There's something else going on here. Of course, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on the radio. And of course, the Internet gives us all the answers, right? So I would certainly know more than my physician would. Wink, wink. To which my doctor replied, give it a month. If it's still an issue in a month... You call me, we'll take another look at it. Well, within a couple of three weeks, it was clear that my doctor had nailed it right on the head. That as I've gotten older, and as our diets, quite frankly, are not what they used to be, this became a pretty bad problem for me. But is medication necessarily the singular answer to dealing with acid reflux? And if not, what can we be doing to address this issue? Joining me now is celebrated physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman, author of a number of best-selling books, including Dropping Acid, The Reflux Diet Cookbook and Cure, The Chronic Cough Enigma, and her latest book, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet, that includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free. Dr. Kaufman is one of the country's leading laryngologists and founder and director of the Voice Institute of New York and serves currently as professor of otolaryngology at the eye, uh, at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai. And Dr. Kaufman, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And boy, is your story an exemplary one. You know, it's just kind of a textbook in that regard. And it was just one of those issues where, uh, I mean, I've suffered with allergies my entire life. And all of a sudden, I started noticing this, this cough creeping in and could not have believed that it would have ever been associated with something like acid reflux. But at the end of the day, that certainly seems to be the case. But I, I suppose the big question is this. You know, we're in this society today apt to want to take a pill to fix things that typically address symptoms, but doesn't get to the real causes. So I guess just leading out the gate, perhaps we can use myself as a guinea pig here tonight, Dr. Coffin. Um, Is this a case where all of a sudden in my early 50s, my stomach is producing more acid than it should? Or what's really going on here? 
Well, first of all, reflux simply means backflow. So it's backflow from the stomach. And the idea that people would have heartburn, and everybody knows what that looks like on TV. You see somebody who's overeaten, who's uh, burping and clutching his chest or bursting into flames. It turns out that this is actually incorrect. The majority of people who have reflux don't have heartburn. So that, that in itself is, a, is sort of a wake-up call. So, well, wait a minute. If they don't have heartburn or indigestion, uh, the, the next question is, what do they have? So post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, a sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, particularly a wet cough when you bring up stuff, um, hoarseness, particularly morning hoarseness, waking up in the middle of the night uh, with coughing and choking, gasping for air like a fish out of water, asthma, uh, allergy symptoms, and even sinus problems. So it turns out that there are probably 125 million Americans that have reflux, and only about 25 million of those people have heartburn as their major symptoms. So that means all these other things are a surprise. And not only are they a surprise to people like you, you, weren't, you were surprised when your doctor said you had silent reflux, but indeed they're also surprises to many physicians. So credit and kudos to your physician for getting it right. Now, let's talk about exactly what's going on here. Uh, when we talk about acid reflux, and you referred to it just a moment ago, doctor, as silent reflux, what is the difference between that and traditional, quote-unquote, heartburn? Well, it, it, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how old you are, but, I mean, I'm pushing 70. So uh, when I grew up, my mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. You, you could set your clock by her. And uh, the, everything was local. The, the chickens came from a local person. Um, all the vegetables came locally. We did not go out to eat very often. Maybe uh, once a month we'd go to a steakhouse or a, for a restaurant. And um, uh, uh, there was no fast food. People weren't drinking so to pop all day. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the reflux epidemic, the asthma epidemic, the sleep apnea epidemic, and a whole host of other medical problems that have exploded are actually all related, and mostly they have to do with how our diets and our lifestyles have changed. We eat later, we eat worse, we eat chemicals, we eat acids, and so on. Uh, if you asked me, however, what silent reflux is, silent reflux is reflux that occurs at night while you're asleep. So you don't have heartburn. Maybe you don't wake up. But it causes all kinds of mischief, including in the sinuses, in the nose, and the throat. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have sinus, nose, and throat symptoms. So silent reflux is predominantly nighttime reflux, and it usually occurs with people who eat late, who eat too much in the evening, who don't have much breakfast or lunch, and who eat not very healthy foods. Now, I have to wonder, too, doctor, in, in terms of the impact, I mean, in my case, it was clearly irritating the back of my throat, and the minute that we addressed it over a short period of time, suddenly this chronic hacking cough went away. But I have to wonder, too, I mean, acid, uh, I've got to imagine for certain parts of of the esophagus and upper throat area can't be good. I mean, the stomach is designed to have acid, and, and acid serves a very important function, doesn't it? It's just when it gets to the wrong places that it becomes problematic. 
Well, you're absolutely correct. Not only is, is it not belong in the throat, when you look at the lining membranes of, say, the vocal cords, those membranes are a thousand times more sensitive to acid than the esophagus. The esophagus is a swallowing tube that joins the throat and the stomach. In other words, that esophagus is pretty tough. It's designed for it. Even normal people who don't have reflux disease will have some reflux some of the time after some meals. But once it gets up into the throat, by the way, we've come up with a new term called respiratory reflux. And the reason this term came about was to alert people to the idea that any respiratory symptom, in respiratory is nose, throat, voice box, bronchial tubes, lungs, the whole respiratory tract, any part of that lining is very sensitive to acid, very sensitive to digestive enzymes. And so we see these people who have been misdiagnosed or, or uncertain of what's going on all turn out to have reflux. It's about, oh, I don't know, 90% of people who have a wet cough, uh, which is an awful lot of people. Chronic cough is, is one of the most common symptoms for which a person sees a doctor. Now, I have to wonder, in relationship to the impact that that acid reflux can have um, on some of those more sensitive tissues, does this also put, it at an, put us at an increased risk for certain types of cancer? It does. In my opinion, uh, you can get cancer without smoking, but not without reflux. And we're talking about esophageal cancer and lung cancer, throat cancer, and even mouth cancer. There's a lot of work that's been done on reflux, looking at the relationships between cancer and reflux. And reflux seems to be a big, big factor. Uh, we know for sure that a cancer of the esophagus, which is reflux caused, there's not much question about that is the fastest growing cancer in America in terms of its incidence, up about 800% since 1970. So that's a big change, an eight, eight-fold increase in esophageal cancer. So we know that there's a relationship with cancer, but, but just as important is the relationship with asthma, with COPD, with cough, with all kinds of respiratory problems. And I think that if you look across the population, um, less than 1% or 2% are at risk for developing cancer, but a whole bunch of people are at risk for developing all these other things. By the way, including sleep disturbances and sleep apnea and snoring. They're all related in many cases, not all, but they're often related to reflux. And, of course, it, all of this begs the big question. If this wasn't an issue that was so widespread a generation or two ago, what's changed? Well, Dr. Kaufman hinted a moment ago to what's changed. Our lifestyles have changed. Our diets have changed. And we're taking perhaps the incorrect path to address all of this. Well, certainly it's great that uh, certain types of medications have been developed, including these proton pump inhibitors that can reduce the impact of acid reflux on uh, sufferers. Is it necessarily the only way to go when it comes to addressing this issue? We're going to get to that part of the equation as we continue our conversation today. We are uh, delighted to have celebrated author with us and physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. Uh, this on the heels of a couple of other bestsellers on the topic, Dropping Acid the Reflux Diet Cookbook, and the Chronic Cough Enigma. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
My guest today is Professor of Otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also a celebrated author. Her latest of three books, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic that impacts millions of American lives. And, of course, the typical response to a diagnosis, Dr. Kaufman, of acid reflux by many physicians today is to do what my doctor did, and that is write out a script and say here, in my case, uh, 20 milligrams of uh, protonics a day and uh, call me in a month and let me know how you're doing. Uh, that would suggest, I would imagine in my own mind, that it's like to say somebody who's constantly taking aspirin for a headache, that that somehow is because they have a aspirin deficiency in their body. Uh, is this necessarily a case of my, of my stomach, in my case, uh, producing more acid than it should on its own? Or does a lot of this really have to do with lifestyle and diet? In other words, is this really manageable outside of taking medication? Not only is it manageable without a medication, there now is increasing evidence that the medicines that we thought were going to be so miraculous for reflux are not so miraculous. Um, right now, the, the, the group of, of medications called proton pump inhibitors, they include uh, protonics and Nexium, Dexalent, uh, Prevacid, uh, what have I left? Nexium. All of these medicines, they're, they're relatively powerful acid suppressants. But even if you take them, you still will make acid. So the best acid suppressant medicine doesn't knock out all the acid. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've now seen a relationship with these group, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they're called, with um, heart disease, kidney disease, bone disease, and most recently a uh, question about uh, Alzheimer's. But actually, the most compelling argument against the use, and by the way, you were on the right way. If you're going to be on these kind of medicines, it should be in terms of weeks, not in terms of years. Um, the most compelling evidence against long-term use, and many doctors say, listen, just you know, take your pills and you can eat what you want. And the reality is that's not true. In 2014, it was a Danish national study of 10,000 people, and they looked at these people and found that people who took the pills for several years had a, listen to this now, an increased, not a decreased risk, an increased risk of developing reflux-caused esophageal cancer. So what that says to me is that these pills knock down the symptoms but don't necessarily control the disease. And so that gets to root cause, root cause. Let's just say you get invited to a dinner party on a Saturday night, 8.30. And from 8.30 to 9.30, you have a glass of wine, perhaps, or maybe you don't. You have hors d'oeuvres. And then you sit down to a rich meal, uh, uh, two, three courses, a chocolate dessert, and a pushback from the table at 11 o'clock or even midnight. Um, all the people at that dinner party are going to have reflux that night. You can't have a big, huge meal at that hour and not reflux all night. And so... Of the risk factors, if you ask me what are the most important sort of uh, defenses that we can all apply, not eating after 8 o'clock at night, not overeating, making sure you have a reasonable diet, meaning you eat breakfast, you eat snacks, you eat lunch, you get most of your calories before 5 o'clock so you don't have to have a major refuel when you get home from work late. And then uh, Soda Pop. My first book's called Dropping Acid, and it's not called Dropping Acid for no reason. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the FDA said you have to have a little bit of acid in everything in a bottle or a can to kill bacteria. 
Unfortunately, uh, people who manufacture these have decided that lots of acid must be good if a little acid kills bacteria. So we now have basically everything in a bottle or a can with the same acidity as stomach acid. I know that's hard to believe. So cutting, out, cutting away from not only you know a soda pop, but also other uh, beverages that are bottled, even things that look, look healthy like energy drinks and fruit juices have acid added. And then not too high fat. And so the, the bottom line is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. And alkaline or alkaline means I'm not too much acid in the diet. By the way, I'm not a big fan of apple cider vinegar for reflux. Yeah, I, I've heard that reported as a, as a uh, one method of dealing with it. I, I never quite bought into that. I mean, for me, if I was really desperate, a little glass of milk seems to do the trick. Yes, milk is alkaline, by the way. For people who don't know, um, alkaline is the opposite of acids. If you take something that's alkaline and something that's acidic, it gets neutralized. And so um, of all the things out there, there's something called alkaline water. And indeed, a water will percolate through the ground and become anti-acid or alkaline. So alkaline water is really quite good for refluxers. And many people with reflux will tell how when they started drinking alkaline water, it helped their reflux quite a bit. So there is a degree to which trying to balance the pH levels does make sense. But as you're suggesting too, doctor, just in terms of of the the schedule and manner in which we eat, uh, not encouraging your stomach to go into high production of acid because it's just finished a huge meal and is now going to be working on breaking that down over the next several hours that we're sleeping is probably one of the smartest ways to start. Well, you know, let's just talk about what happens when you lie down. If your stomach's full, you lose gravity, right? Stuff doesn't run uphill as well as it runs through a flat canal. So you lose gravity. You lose the benefit of being upright. The second thing is if you, let's just pretend you're a little overweight. When you lie down, the weight of your abdomen, of your belly, let's just say you've got a beer belly, the weight of that belly is now pushing on your stomach. And for people who are really overweight, um, it doesn't really even matter whether they eat they're going to be pushing on their stomach all night, even with a little bit of acid, it's coming up. So being overweight certainly is a factor in eating um, and lying down. And, and by the way, it's not just, uh, it's a, let's just say, you know, you had a busy day at work, you finished late, you went and, went and exercised at the gym, you got home, you didn't really have time for lunch, you're starving. Um, now what happens is that you're having a, the biggest meal of the day at 8.30. So that, I've said it twice, and so I'll I'll make it the last time, that's probably the greatest risk factor there is for silent reflux. So that gets to the question of what do you do? What I recommend for people, and by the way, you asked an important question that I never answered. How do you know if you have reflux? There's something called the Reflux Symptom Index, which is a quiz. It's on my website. It's in every one of my books. It takes about a minute to fill it out. You circle uh, nine items from zero to five. And if your score is 15 or more on the reflux index, then you have a 90% chance of having reflux. So you can look at those symptoms and fill out those uh, circles and see if you've got uh, likely to have reflux. By the way, I did take the test, and I came in at a 27. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, yes, 
cancer. That's 27. <laughs> yeah. That- yeah, looking at all the symptoms based on what was happening at the time I was diagnosed a year and a half ago, uh, I said, okay, well, yeah, here we are, 27. I guess we answered that question. Hey, if you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Kaufman is with us today. We're dealing with an issue that, quite frankly, millions of Americans are facing, myself included, and that is acid reflux. And as we're learning, the pill prescription might seem to be an easy way out, but it's not the best way out. And some of this research, including the Danish study to which Dr. Kaufman just referred to a moment ago, is in fact beginning to demonstrate that taking of medications to deal with acid reflux might in fact be exacerbating the problem and making the circumstances even worse. So what do we do? Certainly we know acid production is necessary is the fashion in which the body, the stomach, breaks down foods and processes foods for energy and calories that you need and all of that. But yet, our diets today, increased use of preservatives that are in there, as Dr. Coffin mentions, a high degree of acidity as a preservative in so many foods today. And when you add to that eating late, eating too much, it just becomes a recipe for disaster. All right, speaking of recipes, so then as we've understood what some of the causes are, and we know what the general medical community has done to try to address it, simply give you a pill, what's the better way out? If that's is needed, then how do we manage it better? And how do we deal with this matter of lifestyle and diet? We're going to get to that part of the conversation. Our discussion today with Dr. Jamie Kaufman, a look at Acid Reflux Diet, a new book, by the way, newly published, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And you can also get it through Dr. Kaufman's website, VoiceInstituteOfNewYork.com. That's Voice like voice, all voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more remarks and insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also the author of a number of best-selling books, including the latest, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic of acid reflux, what it is, how to address it. So far, the medical community largely, and I don't wish this to be a blanket accusation, but largely the idea of writing a prescription, sending you home with some medication, seems to be the way we've addressed it. But as Dr. Kaufman is pointing out, that that really is addressing a symptom. It's not getting to the root causes, such as eating too late, eating too much, uh, eating, uh, quite frankly, uh, the wrong kind of diet. And toward that end, let's get into some of the, the key points here, if you can, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, the book, by the way, I'll mention for listeners, has an exhausted list of complete entrees and recipes toward the back. As we mentioned, over 111 new recipes. But as we talk about some of the major categories, Dr. Kaufman, to avoid which ones are sort of the worst when it comes to being contributory to acid reflux? Well, there are different mechanisms of reflux. So fat makes the, uh, uh, for reflux high-fat meals. Um, acid makes for reflux. Um, caffeine and nicotine, they make uh, the valves relax and make for reflux. And uh, so if you, if you ask me what I recommend, if let's just say you take the quiz and you say, gee, I think I have silent reflux or it's, it's a real possibility. What I recommend is a two-week reflux detox. Um, it's not easy. The only fruits you can have is melons and bananas. The only meats you can have is poultry or fish. I consider fish like meat. Um, no condiments, uh, only egg whites. 
Um, nothing out of a bottle or a can except water, or one cup of coffee a day, uh, or tea. Uh, no alcohol. If you drink alcohol, it must be zero. And then the kitchen must close by 7 o'clock, assuming you go to bed at 11. So that it's a strict two-week detox. And usually what happens is in two weeks, people go, whoa, my cough has stopped, whoa. My voice has been okay, or my throat clearing is better, or this lump in the throat doesn't feel so uh, worrisome and annoying. So at the end of two weeks, people then say, okay, what do I do now? The detox is listed in all the books, and it's easily found, this detox diet. And it's a list of things you can eat rather than can't eat. By the way, nothing fried, and the only uh, of the fats that we permit, no butter, is olive oil. So it's pretty, pretty tight. And if you really think about it, what it is is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. Lean, uh, there's no red meat or very little red meat thereafter, after the detox phase. You shouldn't be having red meat every day. Um, clean is a very important concept. If you have an energy bar that you love and you turn it over to read the ingredients and it has 16 unpronounceable chemicals on the back, um, presume that it's poison and you should try and find a new one that's much more natural and has fewer chemicals. I mean, many, many of the manufacturers are beginning to start taking out some of these chemicals and these preservatives. They're not good for you. And so that gets uh, to, to, to green. We know what green means. Green means organic, which is another way of clean. And also, of course, uh, 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 greens are good for you. So you start having things like this morning I had a three-egg omelet with one yolk and, and lox smoked salmon. And then uh, for lunch we got uh, roasted chicken with uh, vegetables and potatoes. For a snack I had a Fuji apple um, and uh, then an avocado. And for dinner, I had uh, a, a sushi. So, you know, I'm not saying you should eat like that every day, but it does represent a paradigm shift compared to, um, you know, two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke. And as you're suggesting here, uh, there are a lot of foods that are really triggers, essentially, that the stomach says, okay, I'm going to have a lot of work to do here. There's much more that has to be or something that's more difficult to digest, like red meats. And so, therefore, it's stimulating additional acid reproduction. Is that accurate? Well, it stays in the stomach a long time, red meat. And, uh, and, and by the way, you brought up a very important word, the word trigger. Um, you've implied that it makes more acid. I'm not sure whether it makes more acid but it makes reflux of the acid that's in the stomach come up. And so among the big triggers, for some people, by the way, none of them, uh, these things that I'm going to mention are for everyone. Um, chocolate is a big trigger food for some people, particularly uh, milk chocolate. Um, alcohol is a big trigger. Uh, onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers. Um, nuts, particularly macadamia nuts and cashews, the safest of the nuts for the reflux are, are, are uh, um, uh, pistachios and almonds. And um, uh, uh, too much caffeine, there's probably nothing wrong with a cup of coffee for most people, or two, or even three. But if you're drinking a pot of coffee before noon, you'd probably have reflux regardless of whether coffee is an actual trigger food. It's the caffeine. So, you know, the question is, what do people do? And in many cases, they, they double down on their mistakes. And so I think what starts to happen, the reason I've done what I've done, the reason my work 
um, is, uh, I believe, is important is it, it addresses the basic question of what does represent healthy eating? What do we know today? And most importantly, I think, as you've underscored both in our conversation today and throughout the book, it, simply taking a medication and thinking we can take this one little tiny pill a day and eat whatever we want, whenever we want, is, is largely really been a, a wives' tale, hasn't it? It's dead wrong. In fact, I mean, uh, we, at least in my practice, virtually every single patient who comes to me is already on the medicine. So we know that there are millions of people who even on the medicine uh, are suffering. Uh, by the way, I should mention that it's not, it never should have been allowed to have these kind of medicines over the counter. And here's why. Uh, the medicine, uh, when you buy it, it says take it for two weeks. Well, what happens after two weeks is people stop cold turkey. And about half of people, when they stop cold turkey, then that's when you get this hyperacidity. That's when you have this, what we call rebound hyperacidity. So what happens is they were doing sort of okay for two weeks, and they quit, and they get terrible symptoms. And then what do they do is they, they tough it out for a little while, and the next thing, they're back on the medicine for two more weeks. And so although this is good for drug sales and for the, for, for the manufacturers, it's not so good for people who do it. So this question about medication, I should point out that there is another class of medicine that, that is safer and that can be taken on an as-needed basis. And although it's a medical term, they're called H2 antagonists. And the three that are available are Zantac, Tagamet, and Pepsid. And those three are much safer over the long haul. They can be taken, gee, I'm having some symptoms, and I'm going to take these for a few days or a week and even longer. And, in fact, we use them in pregnancy. Interesting. At the end of the day, then, doctors, you're suggesting that the, the, the real way to address this issue is by a change in lifestyle and diet. And that then raises, I think, uh, the, the final important question for everyone eavesdropping on our conversation, and that is of your patients that move toward the healthier lifestyle and the, the more friendly diet, how many are able to get completely off of any sort of, uh, of the proton pump inhibitors and be able to remain essentially acid-free in terms of it's in fact the vast majority when patients come to me they're highly motivated people who have you know terrible problems breathing people who have had multiple sinus surgeries people who are miserable um, those people um, who are willing to stick with the program what I tell them is listen you're going to be under my care for a year um, you're going to go on medicine to start out with varieties of different types of medicine, not just acid suppressants, by the way. And the goal is to be medicine-free and asymptomatic and essentially healthy without any reflux a year from now. And that means that they will have, in many cases, lost weight. In many cases, their cholesterols are better. Their diabetes is under control. So we're talking about basically a big, 50, you know, like a 50,000-mile tune-up. In my experience, 90% uh, of our patients uh, get substantial improvement, and the majority get well. Wow. That's a pretty remarkable uh, response rate, and, and one that I think ought to give encouragement to all of us. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. It includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free, and it's available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice Institute of New York.com. And our thanks to best selling author and physician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, welcome back to the conversation. I want to turn a corner into dealing with an important topic and, and one that ironically around the periphery I think we're all familiar with. You've, you've heard comments of, along the order, for example, when it comes to um, sports training, things of this sort, exercise, the old phrase, no pain, no gain, right? It's designed with the thought in mind of testing your endurance and stretching your ability. That certainly can be a helpful way that pain can bring about advancement and growth and development. Certainly, pain can also serve us as a warning of danger. I mean, if you get a little close to the burner and start to feel it smack, you're inclined to rapidly pull your hand away before you do third-degree burn damage to yourself. So that's another case where pain can be your friend. But sadly, I think when it comes to emotional pain, we oftentimes see it singularly as an enemy and never in the form of being beneficial. So how can we change our thinking in that arena? And and are the ways in which pain, in fact, can be our friend, so to speak? <laughs> Don Damon, a lot to unpack. Don, of course, is the founder of Braveheart Mentor Coaching. She coaches uh, women over 50 and success in life and uh, multiple award-winning author and um, pastor of a church for a long time as well, recently retired. Don, always a delight to have you with us. Hey, Craig, thank you for having me again. It's always good to hear your voice. You sound like you're doing wonderful. Well, you're, you're using pain for your advantage. Pain for some gain. And let's talk about that because yeah. a lot of people, boy, they like to eschew any kind of a painful experience. And I, I think we can certainly all understand and relate to that. But is it necessarily always something that we should run from? Or are there ways in which, as I kind of suggested, when it comes to things like a warning sign or, or advantage, of, of improving our own, to say, physical uh, well-being, that it can be our friend. Pain is definitely something that can be our friend. It is a great motivator. Our brain is wired to respond quickly to pain messages. We know that it's a stop doing this and do something else. And like you said in the beginning, that can be good for us if we're touching a hot stove or something that can actually harm us. That pain messages to stop are not helpful for us when we are experiencing the pain that's producing a good benefit for us. Then we have to embrace pain. We have to push past that signal to stop and keep on going to get the benefit. But you know, our brain is wired to avoid, for us to avoid pain and discomfort. We don't like unfamiliar territory. And so a lot of times we get stuck, Craig, because it's gonna be painful to keep going, to change, to have transformation. So it does it come down to a matter of not just sort of historically our relationship with pain, but also learning how to sort of rewire it, so to speak? To make pain our friend, to yeah, reframe how we think about it and actually get excited. And let's make a distinction right now. We're not talking about pain that's harmful. We're not talking about the fact that you would be in danger. Let, there's a distinction between, you know, when I'm experiencing some pain, I can say to myself, I can do hard things. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Millions of people are uncomfortable. Millions of people don't eat food tonight. It's okay. Because we love our comfy, cozy, cushy lives. But then if you can use pain and recognize that, you know what, actually, I have to cross through this threshold of pain to get to the bonus, to get to the reward and the prize that's on the other side. I have to press pain, pass pain to improve my body, 
or to reset my metabolism. Yeah, I'm going to feel hungry. Yeah, that's painful. It's really more discomfortable than anything, discomforting. But if I don't press past it, I'm not going to get that body I want. I'm not going to discipline myself to exercise. Or what about even just this? In personal growth and development, if I don't turn off the TV, if I don't say no to some of those social events, if I don't experience some of that pain of being, oh, I got to do the hard stuff. I don't get promoted. I don't elevate. I don't grow. I don't write that book. (laughs) I know a lot about saying no to things as an author. I have to push past pain all the time to write and create and I want to be with people I want to be social it's like no I've got to experience hard I've got to push past the pain I've got to find my edge and push past it to get the reward well ask anybody for example that has gone through surgery you know when I went through my Mm -hmm. cancer experience here I don't know seven years ago now uh, and uh, the the late afternoon early evening of the surgery when the nurse showed up and said Mr. Roberts um, boy you've got some color back in your face now let's go for a walk I'm thinking yeah this is a joke and then she said no I'm I'm, I'm serious I'm here to help you get some exercise And, and I'm thinking okay Alan Funt is going to step out from behind the curtain at any moment now. Uh, older uh, exactly. folks will, will get that reference. Uh, well, that never happened. And it, it took a little bit of initial persuasion. But okay, I got up, you know, having been sliced open like a Christmas turkey and did oh, that little yeah. walk. And then the physical therapist and the nurse explained yeah. that the faster we get you moving, the faster you're going to heal. And oh, by the way, this little set of stairs over here that seems like Mount Everest. Um, the, you know, we don't want you to hurt yourself, but if right. you can push through the pain, the benefit yeah. is going to be you will heal that much faster and get out of our bedroom and get into your own. And boy, I like the sound of that. And so every day, if they said, we want you to do two laps around the the nurse's station, I would do three. And if the next day they said, you did three yesterday, do four, I'd come back and do six. Only because I knew that there was an, an innate benefit. Yeah. Pushing myself through, again, you don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to pull stitches open and create another problem. But maybe sometimes just the understanding that, that there are ways in which that pain can make you stronger. The pain can make you stronger, and it's oftentimes fear of the unfamiliar, fear that stops us. Fear says, you're going to hurt, you're going to die, you're going to look stupid, your your reputation is at risk, you're unsafe. And, you know, that is just our, our old lizard brain, if you will, saying, you know, stop what you're doing because I don't, My bra- the brain's number one job is to detect threat. And it says, no, let's keep you here. But just like your example, if we give into that fear, if we give into that rationalization that our brain wants to give us right away to say, stop doing this, we actually can do a disservice to ourselves. We don't make the change. We, we, don't, we don't get out of that toxic relationship. We don't press our bodies. We don't go for the, uh, to take that test. We don't study. We stay in apathy and you know, average. We stay small. We limit ourselves. So we have to find that edge and be willing to get outside of our comfort zone. Otherwise, the way we live, it's really called staying in the box, staying in the cave, protecting ourselves. And because we avoid discomfort, 
We do. We stay stuck. We stay addicted. We stay broke. We stay in bad relationships because change is scary, but it's also necessary. Push your boundaries. Take more territory. Don't live small. Motivation won't come. Don't wait for that, by the way, because it won't come. Uh, you weren't motivated to get up out of that hospital bed. You were motivated to stay put. And that's the way our brain wants to keep us. But if you don't, you'll have discomfort of another kind, Craig, because that box, it's really scary when we get older and it's called regret. I should have done more. I should have taken the risk. I should have taken the leap. I should have changed when I had the time. So I encourage people to face their fears and make necessary changes, risk it, push the boundaries, tap your potential, for goodness sakes. And is a big part of this as we sort of make these excuses and, and get engaged in, in you know, degrees of rationalization, the what, what ifs, uh, is a lot of that really based in fear of the unknown? And I'm going to I'm going to venture out a little bit here and probably get myself in trouble and maybe a little bit of lack of faith at the same time, because, you know, there that element of trust needs to be there. I, I needed to trust the nurse that the nurse knew what she was talking about. And so sometimes you have to kind of step out on faith. And and even though you can calculate in your mind, well, what if I fall? What if I tear a stitch open? What if I bleed out? You know, your brain immediately goes to all the worst case scenarios. And I would imagine that that the enemy helps to to help reinforce some of those negative worst case scenario thoughts, doesn't it? I agree with that. I think that fear is totally a thief of our dreams. And yes, a lack of faith or or a floundering faith. It's a, maybe it's like I don't know if this is God. I don't know. It maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's, you know God. God doesn't want me to test him. I should stay safe. And and again, those rationalizations that really serve to protect our status quo. And sometimes we even get angry at people who would come to us with faith statements like, "Go for it. Take a risk." We say, "Hey." You know, we feel inside, don't challenge me and don't, you're triggering me, don't trigger me, um, don't push me. And we resent that, but, and we try to intimidate those people who would try to speak faith into our lives. And then again, like I said, we stay stuck in pain of regret, the pain of apathy, unfulfilled purpose, the death of dreams. And I believe that, yes, like Peter in the boat, he could have stayed comfortable. He could have stayed in there with all those other sissies, I mean, disciples. He could have, but he said, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to do something really scary. I'm going to get out of the boat. And look what he had as a result. The, the faith that it took. Yeah, we can say he, 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 all those messages that we preached that he started to, you know, fall in the water. He took his eyes off Jesus. Yeah, but he also did the thing. So don't fear failure. Get out. Take a step. Get on that water. What an amazing testimony he has now to say. I was falling in the ocean and Jesus rescued me. And now I know I can go anywhere with him because he's going to come through for me. Take that risk. Take a step of faith. You bet. Yeah, we'll we'll never know to what degree God has got our back unless we allow him the opportunity to get our Mm -hmm. back. Don, we appreciate the time. This is really an important topic, and I hope that, you know, even though we've just literally scratched the surface of this subject matter tonight, I really hope it's it's maybe opened some eyes this evening for people that have been fearful of pain, fearful of taking risk. And again, we're, we're not saying going out and doing something crazy, but, you know, a, a little bit of stretching yourself just beyond the point of your sense of self 
confidence that then allows the Lord to come in and meet you in those gaps. Uh, right? You know, Lord, I, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right? Uh, to, to allow that stretch of our faith. And you can only do it by engaging. You can only do it through action. And, uh, and learning that you can leverage the power in pain for personal growth and personal transformation. More information available at Dawn's website, dawndamon.com. That's D-A-W-N-D-A-M-O-N, just exactly the way it sounds. It's spelled dawndamon.com. Thank you, Dawn. As always, we appreciate your valuable insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.